take your Bibles and open up to John 4. And as you do, I'll tell you about this man right here. His name was Amu Haji, or at least that's what he was called. It's a nickname that uh, generally translated means old-timer. And this man holds a record that I, I don't know that anyone really wants to hold. He was known before his death in 2022 as the world's dirtiest man. You can see from the pictures that uh, he lived up to his title. In fact, he did not bathe for over 67 years straight. 67 years. Some of y'all have kids at 67 minutes like, you need another bath. 67 years, and he was okay with it. He literally lived in a hole in the ground. His food was roadkill, and his water came from rusty oil cans that he set out to collect rain. The reason he didn't bathe was not because he was antisocial, though I imagine that helped. Uh, It was really because he was afraid that the water and the soap would bring disease into his life. Interesting, isn't it? You look at him and what seems so evident is that water and soap would be something that would help him. In fact, at one point in time, the the Tehran Times reported that a group of young men tried to forcefully give him a shower, but he escaped. (laughs) I like the way they put that. He escaped the shower. He was afraid of that which he desperately needed. He thought what would clean him, what would cleanse him, would actually harm him. The danger for us is that in some ways, Amu Haji is all of us when we resist the sanctifying pursuit of the spirit of God in our lives. When we resist God's grace in our lives, when we shy away from the very thing that we need, when we feel safe in the dark holes of sin that we've carved out for ourselves over the years, we are Amu Haji. In Jesus' interaction in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, we see him draw her out from one of these holes through his gracious pursuit of her soul. We're going to find this morning that God's loving exposure of your sin is evidence of his patient and gracious pursuit of that which you so desperately need but may not always want, and that is your Christ-likeness. God loves you too much to leave you in the filth of your sin. John chapter 4, if you're not already there, we're going to pick up in John chapter 4 in the middle of this interaction. We took a break last week when we were looking at the importance of parenting and raising up that next generation. This week we jump back in to the interaction. And in chapter 4, verse 15, I want to hit that verse first because it sets up where Jesus goes here. The woman had been talking with Jesus about water. And Jesus had been at the well with her and said, you know, if you knew who it was who was talking to you, you would have asked me for water, and I would have given you living water. And she says in verse 15, sir, give me this water. She's not understanding that Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality more than a physical reality here. But that request is where Jesus now begins to go after this. Jesus, though it looks like an abrupt change in subject and topic, and it is in a way, Jesus is answering that request as he continues to talk to her. Pick up in verse 16. It says this, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Go call your husband and come here. Earlier in John chapter 4, we had read where Jesus came to the well and sat down because he was tired. And I brought up during that sermon that this is evidence of Jesus' full humanity. Here, we find evidence of Jesus' full divinity. Because Jesus' turn here, that that seems like an odd and, and abrupt change in subject, presses in on an area of her life that as fully God, he knew was an area that she needed exposed. So he says, go and call your husband. And we get a little bit of whiplash here trying to keep up with Jesus, but his purpose remained the same here. In the text, in the Greek, husband is, the, is in the emphatic position. Jesus is, is making sure that he's pressing in on the relational chaos of this woman's life. 
He's pressing in on one of the areas where she had been looking for satisfaction, where she had been looking to have her thirst met for so long and yet unable to find what she really needed. And Jesus, as the master surgeon, is using his scalpel of his word to press in, to expose, to reveal here. And the woman answers him and says, well, I have no husband. Technically, this was true. And maybe for a moment, because she didn't understand at this point who it was she was speaking to, she may have thought, wow, I dodged a bullet on that one. He doesn't need to know the reality of my life at this point. But Jesus, being fully God, did know And that's why he responds in verse 17, the second part. He says, you're right. You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Five husbands. There's question in interpretation of this passage. Some believe that this is a metaphorical reference that Jesus makes here. Because he's dealing with a Samaritan. And you'll remember maybe from two weeks ago where I talked about how the Samaritans came from the intermarriage, the intermingling of Jews with the pagan nations that came in after the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom. So there are some that are saying that that Jesus is metaphorically indicting the Samaritan race here as being uh, unfaithful to God and having many husbands, as it were. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is pressing in on this woman's relational chaos. The word in the Greek can mean husband or man. So there are some that believe that this is just Jesus simply saying, you've had five men who you've been intimate with over the course of your life. And they'll argue that saying that the, the rabbinical law at the time stated that a woman could, no, could not be married any more than three times. So they're saying for her to have five husbands would have been a, a, a breaking of the law. I don't think that she was too concerned about that. So I think the best understanding is that she had been married five times. And Jesus contrasts, and I think there's, this is another reason, because he says the one that you have now is not your husband. In fact, there's even more there than meets the eye. Again, in the, the language there, in the Greek, the, the word your is in the emphatic position. In other words, Jesus is saying, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. He may be someone's husband, but he's not your husband. So I think we're getting the picture here. This woman's relational life was in a state of chaos, to put it lightly. This is why she was at the well in the middle of the day drawing water when no one else was around. This is why she would have been considered in this society and culture a woman of ill repute. It's not hard to imagine the shock and surprise that must have just made itself evident on her face. Here's this Jewish rabbi that she had just met, that she had just encountered. She was just getting past the shock that he was even talking to her. And now he's pulling the curtain back on her deepest and darkest secrets in her life. And she must have been shocked, flabbergasted, surprised that he would have such a deep knowledge of her. What was Jesus doing here? It almost seems calloused of him. One commentator said, though, and I think he's right, he said that in doing this, Christ was exposing a life that was not so much immoral, though it it was that, but he was exposing a life that was a mess, a life that was a broken series of false beginnings and shattered hopes. Remember the woman had said, sir, give me this water. What was her greatest need? Her greatest need was to understand her true thirst. And so Jesus is revealing. He's pulling the curtain back. He's unveiling that true thirst. To say, this is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been seeking to satisfy, and you haven't been able to find it. See, sin does to us what it had done to this woman. It promises satisfaction time and time and time again, only to leave us with shattered expectations time and time and time again. God's love for us in Christ does what he does here. It it exposes that pattern of sin in our lives, and it, it calls us to repentance. It calls us to forsake the old and to find true life in the new. Our first point this morning is this. Acknowledge the deceptive dangers of sin. Acknowledge the deceptive danger of sin. 
That's what Jesus is doing with this woman here. And so what it looks to be so calloused and perhaps even unloving from Jesus to press in on such a sensitive issue, such an embarrassing subject with this woman, was really quite the opposite. John the Baptist, do you remember what he said about Jesus to his disciples? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the the sin of the world, right? So why are we surprised when Jesus exposes the sin in this woman's life? That's what he had come to do, to remove the sin, to take the sin away. And so he's leaning in. So rather than being calloused and unloving, this is really the most loving thing that Jesus could have ever done for her and that I pray that God has ever done for you in Christ is to pull back the curtain on your sin, to draw you out of the hole that you've been living in in your sin, thinking that this is where I'm safe. Our world has come a long way in so many areas. People used to think that certain things were good for them that now we would look at and say, are you serious? Did you know that when radioactivity was first breaking onto the world's scene and we were first becoming aware of this, that people would drink radioactive water, radon, water with radon infused into it. This was considered to be something that was good for you, something that was healthy for you. In fact, a closer look at the, the label there, it says certified radioactive water contains radium. No thanks. Anybody else in the room want to have some radioactive water today? Or, or how about these? These are um, radioactive blankets or pads that were used for arthritis. They had uranium infused in these, these pads, and they were meant to cure arthritis. We shake our heads at that, right? And we say, why would anyone do that? That's crazy. They didn't know any better. They thought that this was helpful, even though it was quite the opposite. They also, ladies, in case you wanted a particular glow, if I can put it that way, they had radioactive cosmetics, radioactive makeup that they were selling for ladies to use to get that, uh, I don't know, natural glow about them. How about it's, it's cold and flu season right now. There's some coughing going on around here. If you wanted cough syrup back when it was first breaking on the scene with Bayer, you were getting heroin-infused cough syrup. Yeah. That's one of the original bottles right there. You can see heroin right across the, the middle of the bottle there. Can you imagine going to the grocery store to the pharmacy aisle and you just see heroin on one of the cough syrup bottles? All of these are examples of situations where people thought something was helping them or was good for them or was beneficial when the reality was it was killing them. That it wasn't good for them at all. It was deadly to them. That is sin. Sin looks good on the surface. It's got the shiny veneer to us. It looks like it's, it's something that will benefit us, that will bring us pleasure, that will bring us satisfaction when the reality is our sin is what is killing us. It may not be for you that you have five husbands, but maybe for you it's the five glasses of wine or the five beers that you need every night. Or maybe for you it's the, the five hours in front of the computer screen. And the images that are cascading across the pixels. Maybe for you it's, it's five words yelled at your wife in frustration and anger. Or perhaps it's the five grand that you choose not to report on your income when tax season comes along. Whatever it, it is, we all have that sin. And it doesn't go away when you become a believer Nobody in this room is perfect and sinless. And so that's why this is such an important message for us as well. See, sin is the broken cistern that we keep going back to, expecting to find fresh water, and we're surprised when the reality is, is it's sludge and muck at the bottom of the broken cistern. Sin convinces us that the next hit will satisfy, but it never does. That's the deceptive danger of sin. Wayne Grudem, who's a, a theologian, put it this way about sin. He said, though people sometimes persuade themselves that they have good reasons for sinning, 
When examined in the cold light of truth on the last day, it will be seen in every case that sin ultimately just does not make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Drinking radioactive water, putting on radioactive makeup. It does not make sense. Jesus instead was offering something better. He's offering you satisfaction that is found in him. But we have to do something about sin. And that's why the exposure of sin in our lives is a grace of God. And that's what he's doing here with this woman. So I want to ask you some questions. Christian, if you're in this room and you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. I want to ask you, are you soft to the spirit in this regard? Are you praying like King David prayed? Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me. Psalm 139, David's praying that because he wants God to expose the sin in his life. That's a great prayer for us. Are you harboring broken cisterns, Christian, that you keep going back to, believing the lie that there's going to be fresh water there the next time? Are you seeking from this world what can only truly be found in the world to come? Beware the dangers, the deceptive dangers of sin. We're not exempt from falling prey to the lie of the enemy just because we're in Christ. If you're here this morning, though, and and you would say, "I'm, I'm not a Christian, I've got some questions for you, too. Are you tired of seeking satisfaction in this world that has yet to fulfill for you? Can you honestly name one area of your life where you've experienced true, lasting, contented satisfaction? How long does the pleasure last before you need that next fix? And I'm not just talking about the big ticket sin items here. Maybe you're chasing success and you get that promotion, you get that job and then you push back from the table one day and you go, this is not what I thought it was gonna be. Or maybe you're chasing status. And so you got that house and you got that car and you got that zip code and you've got that income and you've got that family and you've got everything that you've ever wanted and yet you still feel like there's It's not enough. Let me ask you, who would say, I'm not a Christian, would you be willing to let go of that chase for satisfaction that would last? That's what Jesus is offering this woman here. And that's why he's pressing in. That's why he's pulling things back. That's why he's revealing her sin because of the dangers therein. But he's also wanting to draw her into a relationship with him so that she will find satisfaction and know satisfaction. But that has to begin by us understanding the deadliness of sin. John Owen, 17th century uh, pastor, said this, Do you mortify, meaning do you put sin to death in your life? He's speaking to believers here. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Here's the famous line from Owen. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the stakes, Christian. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Beware, beware of, acknowledge the deceptive danger of sin. It's a grace of God that he pulls back the curtain on the sin in our lives and shows it to be what it is. But you know what? We don't often like that, do we? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Christian, non-Christian alike, we don't like our sin exposed. It's not something that brings us warm fuzzies. It's like a muhaji not wanting the water and the, the soap. He was happy to have his filth still cling to him. We want our filth. We just want it behind closed doors. Well, this woman didn't want the spotlight on her either, and that's why she shifts the conversation in verse 19. Look at the text. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
So she opens up with this line, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He had told her more about her life than anyone would ever have imagined that someone could know. The Samaritan people, if you'll remember, they believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and that was it. They didn't believe in any books outside of that as being authoritative. So the first five books, well, within the first five books, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about a coming prophet, one that would be a prophet like him. And in, verse, uh, in, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, he's, he's talking about the, that, and he's, he's casting this expectation that another prophet would come along. So the Samaritans had an expectation that another prophet would come along and that that prophet could be the Messiah. So is she implying that maybe Jesus is the, the coming Messiah? It's possible. Certainly she's going to get there by the end of our passage. But here, if nothing else, she's recognizing something significant about Jesus that he knows her that well. He must be different than just a normal Jewish rabbi. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Also, I don't want to talk about this anymore. So let's talk about something else. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. What mountain was that? That was Mount Gerizim. So where they are in central Israel there, they are by Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was significant. And it was significant in the Old Testament. Abraham, when he was still Abram, in Genesis 12, 7, set up an altar at Mount Gerizim to worship the Lord. Okay? Jacob, in Genesis 33, verse 20, set up an altar at Mount Gerizim to worship the Lord. Fast forward, we get Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, the promised land, that you're entering to take possession of it, you shall set a blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. There was a, a Samaritan temple that was built there on Mount Gerizim somewhere uh, in the 5th century B.C. about and torn down in about 129 B.C. So this was a significant mountain, and it wasn't wrongly a significant mountain necessarily. I just mentioned Abraham built an altar there. Jacob built an altar there. Moses pronounced blessings on the mountain. That's why they looked at Mount Gerizim and said, we're going to worship here. Remember, they're only holding to the first five books of the Bible. She says, in contrast, you Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Implied here is the question, which one's right? Which one's right? Do we worship here at Mount Gerizim or is it really Mount Zion that we should be worshiping at? You seem like you're a knowledgeable individual. Why don't you share your knowledge with me? Ask yourself for a moment, though. Do you, do you think this was really a question she just couldn't wait to get an answer to? Do you think this was keeping her up at night? Do you think she was thinking, oh man, if only I knew, whether it was Mount Gerizim or Mount, Mount Zion, if only I knew which one. And here, I've got the opportunity. Or could it be something else? Could it be that with her sin exposed, she's thinking, I need to do anything I can to get the subject off my sin. That is, she was doing whatever she could to avoid the feeling of conviction. And that's a danger that we face as well. As I mentioned, nobody likes their sin to be exposed. And so whether it's through reading the word or through somebody else coming into our lives, there are times that we are tempted to run from conviction. Christian, that is one of the most dangerous things that we can do. Second point this morning is along those lines, don't run from conviction. Don't run from grace-induced conviction. And that's an important phrase here. Grace-induced conviction, because I hope to show you that conviction is a grace of God at work in our lives. Just like this was loving for Jesus to pull the curtain back on her sinfulness. It's a gracious act of God to pull the curtain back on our sinfulness and to press in on those sins. Sometimes we think ignorance is bliss. I'd rather just bury my head in the sand and not think about my sin. And so when conviction comes, we do what this woman does, though we do it through different means. How do we run from conviction? A few thoughts here. Number one, we, uh, we find a church to itch our ears. I'm going to go to a church that doesn't talk about my sin. I'm going to go to a church that doesn't preach about repentance. I'm going to go to a church where I don't have to be in a discipleship situation if I don't want to be. Another way that we run from conviction is we cut off relationships with people who call us on our sin. 
We don't want deep relationships with people. We want to keep everything on the surface. We want to keep everything shallow. We don't really want to be known by anyone. Another way we do this, we run from conviction, is we avoid reading certain passages in the Bible. Because we know that that passage is going to speak to a sin in our lives and we don't want to have to deal with it. Another way we do this is we don't allow our minds to linger on the gravity of our sin. What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, there's a million ways we do that. When we begin to feel conviction, we pick up this device and open a different app that's going to take our minds off of it. Or we turn on the TV. Or we busy ourselves with a household chore. Or maybe in some cases we pick up the bottle. We numb ourselves to the Spirit's work in our lives, which is a grace of God to help us to feel that conviction. Sin is deadly, and as we saw in point one, it, it, it is deadly, but it kills in a slow and painful process. And y'all, listen, even as Christians, though it cannot ultimately kill our relationship with the Lord, it can still dim our light and our soul can be hampered greatly when we ignore the conviction of God in our lives. We see in scripture examples of what it looks like when that happened. For example, King David wrote this in Psalm 32, verses three through four. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. When we do not bring our sin to the light, when we don't confess our sin, when we hide our sin, when we run from conviction, it's a grace of God to feel the weight of his hand in our lives. We should feel that and it shouldn't be comfortable. Not only here, but also in Psalm 38. In Psalm 38, David says this, he says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. And all the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed and I groan because of the tumult of my heart. This is the reality of our spiritual lives when we run from conviction. And that's why conviction is a grace of God. John Owen, if I can go back to him one more time, he says this. He says, every unmortified sin, remember to mortify sin is to put it to death. Every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, its life. And it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and its peace. Some of you who struggle with your assurance of salvation do so because you spend the majority of your Christian life running from conviction. If you flee from conviction, if you harbor sin, those broken cisterns in your life, and you're looking to feel good about your relationship with the Lord, it won't happen. Conviction is a grace of God to draw us into confession. It's to draw us into confession. See, conviction is not just meant to make us feel like we're this big in God's eyes. Conviction is not just meant to make us feel the heavy hand of God. Conviction is not just meant to make us feel the guilt of our sin. Conviction is not just meant to make us feel a separation between us and God. Conviction is not just meant to make us feel a hatred for our sin, though it's meant to feel, make us do all of those things. Ultimately, its end is to bring us into confession. It's to draw us into the light and out of the darkness which is what Jesus is trying to do with the woman at the well here. 
Conviction is meant to produce confession. Confession involves two things. First, an agreement with God that our sinful thought or action or belief or feeling is indeed that it is sin. That's what it means to confess. We are agreeing with God that it is sin, that it misses the mark of his perfection that he has set for us. It's the first thing it does. The second thing that that confession does is it moves us into a resolution to repent from that action, thought, belief, or feeling in pursuit of righteousness. So it agrees with God that this is sin and it says, I'm going to repent from that and not do it anymore and I'm going to pursue righteousness instead. That's confession. Conviction ultimately is completed when it brings us to that point when it brings us to confession. I came across an article this morning written by a man named Colin Smith that I think is helpful. He provides some helpful prompts for how we can mourn over our sin. In other words, some helpful prompts for what to do with the feeling of conviction. A few of these that he suggests. First, he suggests this. He suggests uh, mourning or spiritual mourning names particular sins. So when you feel conviction, part of confession is coming in and identifying specifically what your sin is before God. Sometimes we don't even want to do that. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed. To say, God, please forgive me for this. But our brokenness is evidenced when we will come before the Lord who is omniscient, who knows all things, yes, but still come before him and say, this is where I've sinned. It names particular sins. Second, spiritual mourning involves heartfelt sorrow. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is godly grief that produces repentance. This is not a sorrow because I've been caught. This is a sorrow because this is a sin that put Christ on the cross. This is a sin that has interrupted my intimacy and fellowship with the Father. And I'm grieved by that. Third, Spiritual mourning arises from humility. The humility to go to the Lord to say, I need your gracious forgiveness. I need your mercy. I'm a sinner. Fourth, spiritual mourning is infused with hope. With hope. Because in Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is forgiveness for past, present, and future sins. And here, if you are in Christ this morning, here's the good news. You can't out-sin the blood of Jesus. There's not going to be a point where God wipes his hands, washes his hands of you and says, no, I'm sorry, it's too many times I'm done with you. If you are in Christ, your sins have been paid in full. It is finished. There is no more payment to be made. And so you can have the hope of spiritual mourning produces hope in you because you know when you name that sin and confess that sin that God will forgive that sin. Spiritual mourning, fifth, happens at the cross. And that's why we have hope. That's why we have hope. We don't take our conviction to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, well, I just need to be better or I just need to install a different accountability software, or I just need to stop this behavior, or I just need to quit yelling at my wife, or I just need to quit doing this. Spiritual mourning goes to the cross with your sin. And understands, as Paul wrote in Colossians, that the record of debt that stood against you has been nailed to the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That that sin has been put on the cross. And then finally, Spiritual mourning will lead you to forsake sins. That's the repentance piece. To say, I I don't want to do this anymore. Conviction produces this in our lives. This is why conviction is grace-induced. It's a kindness of God. It's unmerited favor of God to bring conviction into our lives because the sin that we love is really killing us. And so just like it's gracious to go into the home of the alcoholic and to take away every ounce of alcohol in that home 
So it is gracious for God to lead us to a conviction that produces a confession that leads to repentance of that sin. That says, I don't want it anymore. And this is a work of the Spirit in our lives. This is a grace of God in our lives. This grace of God that convicts us is a patient grace. Because notice, in, as we return to our text here, though this woman introduces this rabbit trail to avoid dealing with her sin, Jesus patiently goes along with it, doesn't he? He doesn't say, well, well, hold on a second, let's get back and talk about your husbands. You're trying to squirm out of this one. Go get your husband. You don't have a husband, that's right. You need to feel guilty and, and horrible about your sin. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say to her, we'll get to, we'll get to the issue of worship in, in which mountain later on, but first let's keep dealing, let's press in on where you're at here. Do you see God's gracious pursuit through Christ, through his son of, of this woman's soul in this whole interaction? Look at what happens in the, in the text. Jesus said to her, he answers her question. She says, well, which mountain is it? He says, okay, let's talk about that for a minute. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, meaning the Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus picks up the conversation with this woman, and he zooms in on a, a specific topic that she introduces here. And do, do you know what that topic is? The word occurs nine times in these verses here. Worship. Worship. His response uh, unfolds in, in three parts. First, he answers the question about the mountains by an introducing and announcing an impending end to worship at both places. Look at the text. He says, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, will you worship the Father. So his first part of his answer to the question is, that's the wrong question. Because these mountains are going to be obsolete eventually when it comes to the issue of true worship. Because that's her implied question. What is true worship? Where does true worship take place? What does it look like? So he's saying it's, it's not about the mountains. In other words, it's, it's not about a location. It's not about a physical temple. It's not about a place. That's part one. Part two, he answers the question of uh, who gets it right. And he does so by uh, alluding to the, the, the idea that was prophesied throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, including in the first five books, that salvation would arise from the, from the Jews that the Messiah would come from the Jews. So he tells her very bluntly, he answers the question, he's not afraid, he doesn't dance around this. He says, look, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he condescends to even deal with the, the question between Jew and Gentile there as he's talking with this woman. So he's dealt with the location issue, he's dealt with the issue of of who got it right. But then he, he answers a question she didn't ask. And that's the question of how should we worship? He answered where, he answered who, how. And that's what he says here when he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In this third point or part of his answer, he defines the nature of worship, which transcends all of this question of mountains and Jew and, and Samaritan and everything, transcends all of that. The hour, he says. In John's gospel, the hour refers uh, every time, uh, I, I believe, to the cross and the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. Okay? So when he says the hour is coming, he's thinking forward to the hour of his glorification, which would come through the cross and the empty tomb. And he says that's going to do something so radical that it's going to change the paradigm on worship forever for everyone. It's no longer going to be about going to this building or that building or this mountain or that mountain. 
it's, it's going to be about the individual and the heart of the individual and the character of the worship being offered. Matthew chapter 25, or 27 rather, Jesus dies on the cross, breathes his last. What happens in the temple? There's a big curtain that's hanging up. And what happens to that curtain? Right? It gets torn in two. That's a horrible sound effect for tearing. Rip sound. It gets torn in two from top to bottom. Why? What was that symbolizing? Well, Jesus here is telling us ahead of time that that's going to symbolize more than just the access to the Holy of Holies within the temple. That symbolizes that the barrier separating God and man is forever gone because we've got a great high priest now in Jesus. If you've been tracking with us through our daily Bible reading, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, which we just finished up, had so much to say about that. That he is our great high priest and that we have access now to God because of Jesus. And that's where he's going here with this answer to the question. That there's an entirely new paradigm for worship. And he, he establishes this in two ways. He says, number one, God is spirit. He's referring here to the Father. The Father is spirit. Meaning what? Meaning he can't be contained in a building. And that was true even before the cross. King Solomon, back when he was dedicating the temple uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, he uh, mentioned about the temple, he said this, Who is able to build him a house, meaning the temple, since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? So even as Solomon was building the, the, the greatest temple that stood, which was the first temple, he was acknowledging, going, yeah, this is fantastic, this is great, but I'm not even beginning to pretend that this contains God. And Jesus is making that point here. God is spirit. It's not about Mount Gerizim. It's not about Mount Zion. God is spirit and desires people to worship him in spirit, in truth. What was this woman's greatest need at this time in history? Under this dispensation, let me put it that way. Her greatest need was she needed the atonement or the forgiveness of her sins, yes? How did that happen during this time? What were people prescribed to do? They were to go to the temple and they were to bring what? They were to bring a, rhymes with sacrifice, starts with an S. Sacrifice. They were to bring an offering. They were to bring a sacrifice. And that sacrifice needed to have something that would die for the forgiveness of the sin. That's what this woman needed, Right? You need forgiveness of your sins. What does that look like? You got to go to the temple, bring your offering, have it sacrificed, then your sin will be atoned for. Okay, Jesus says here, the Father desires those who will worship him in spirit. And what's the next word? Truth. John 14, 6. What does it say? I am the way, the truth. Who says that? Jesus. At this point, she needed to go to the temple to have a earthly priest take her offering in and offer it so that she could receive atonement. Jesus is here alluding to and saying the time is coming. In fact, it's here when the paradigm of worship is going to change forever. Because this sin, remember, Jesus is still on schedule with her right now. He's still talking about the same issue. Her need for living water. Sir, give me this water. Great. Let's talk about your need for it. Here's your sin. You've got all these marriages. I don't want to talk about that. I'm going to run from conviction. Okay, I'll, I'll go along with you right now because of my patient grace in your life. He's still going after the, the heart of the issue. She needed to have her sins atoned for. Even to, to even think about what could proper worship look like. He's saying, look, worship from here on out is going to look different. Because God is making a way for you to worship in spirit and truth. Worship that was more than, than just true in its nature, but true because it's offered through Christ. It's acceptable because of Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes to the Father must come through him. So here he's still answering the question. He's still patiently pursuing her soul. Saying, let's talk about worship. Your worship, Mount Gerizim, Mount Jerusalem, Mount Zion, it's not about that. It needs to be offered in spirit and truth. And the ultimate embody, embodiment of truth is Jesus. 
He was still on schedule, still pursuing her with this relentless patience to get her to the point of understanding the greatness and the depth of her need. And thankfully, God is not only that way with her, but he's that way with us to lead us to salvation. But even post-salvation too, Christian, he still patiently and graciously pursues us on a regular basis to bring us to be more like Christ. Point number three this morning is this. Rejoice in God's ongoing sanctifying grace. Rejoice in his ongoing sanctifying grace. I don't know if this is good news or bad news. I think it's good news, but here's the thing. God's not done exposing your sin even after you come to faith in Christ. Right? He loves us too much to leave us in our sinfulness. He's going to continue to pursue it and continue to expose it and continue to point us to come back to Christ, come back to, to worship the Father. Well, how do we worship? We worship through the one who is the truth. We worship through Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice that is atoned for our sins, past, present, and future. And so now as God continues to graciously pull back the curtain on our sin, to graciously reveal our sin in our lives, he does so in order to make us more like Jesus. And we should rejoice in that. Where does this take place? What does this sanctifying grace look like for us? It takes place first, y'all, right here. This is not in order, by the way. These are just three spheres where this can take place. It can take place right here. It can take place in the church. It can take place with brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another enough to say, hey, I, I see sin in your life and I'm concerned. Now, caveat on this. We are not the Holy Spirit in another believer's life. And so there are ways for us to go about calling out sin, especially in gray areas where we can be careful on how we do that and understand that maybe our assumption might be misguided or wrong. There are other times where it's black and white and it's clear and it is more of a direct, this is biblically, look, here it is. Here's the sin, this is wrong. But the church is a place where this takes place. That's why we believe connection is such an important and imperative part of what it looks like to belong to the body of Christ. To have relationships here where you know other people and you are known by them. That is a grace of God in your life. Second, it also takes place through the word of God, through scripture. As we read God's word, he graciously reveals more sin in our life. The word of God is the mirror. And the mirror exposes the sin. And so we need to spend the time in the word. And as it confronts us, we need to not flee from conviction, but praise God for conviction and let conviction have its end result in our life, like we talked about in point number two, leading us into that confession. The power of God's word. And then finally, the power of prayer in this. Inviting God to search us to see if there's any grievous way in us praying that God would make us more like Jesus, asking God for more relationships within the church of people who would pursue our Christ-likeness as well. Y'all, God is so incredibly patient with me. And I need it on a daily basis. He hasn't washed his hands of me. And Christian, if you're here this morning, he hasn't washed his hands of you. God's patient grace towards this woman at the well is a picture of his patient grace toward all of us. And if you're in Christ, don't take that for granted. If you're not in Christ, don't despise the grace any longer. Don't despise the grace any longer. A muhaji died in his filth. It's too late to do anything about his dirt after he's dead. If I can lean in to you this morning, if you're not in Christ, there's the very real danger if you continue to resist God's grace, that he will give you the desires of your heart. That he will turn you over. And you will spend the rest of your life chasing satisfaction that will never come. 
and in your last moments, I fear for you the terror that you will experience. Don't resist the grace of God any longer. Acknowledge your sin. Confess your need for salvation. Trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. Rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. Repent and believe in Christ today. If you're in Christ and you've done that, praise God for that. And thank God that his grace continues to work in our lives. Praise God that we can sing when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of that guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross, for salvation, for your kindness, your mercy, your grace in our lives. Father, forgive us for when we run from the gracious conviction that you bring into our lives. Forgive us for when we try to cover up our sin, thinking that you don't know. Forgive us for turning to broken cisterns when living water is offered to us. Lord, may we be eager to see more of your sanctifying hand in our lives. Make us more like Jesus day in and day out. Every single day, God, may we see more of your work in our lives to make us more like Christ. It's a need. Lord, we're grateful that like this woman at the well, if we are in Christ at some point in time, you pulled the, the curtain back on our sin and allowed us to see it for what it was. God, that, that was a painful grace, but a grace nonetheless. And we are thankful for that. And I pray that you would do that more. Even that you would do that with some who are here this morning who haven't made the decision to trust in Christ. Press in on them. May your hand be heavy upon their soul. And may they not find peace until they find it in Christ. So that they can say with us, I'm looking to Jesus now, the one who made an end of all my sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.